Today we're looking at 1 Peter 2, and the topic is this, how do we live um, a life of hope in public? How do we live out our living hope in public life with people we meet out and about in our communities and in the world around us? I'm not going to major on this, but it's stating the obvious to say that the world's got a few uncertainties in it at the moment. You only have to watch UK politics to think, wow, what's, what's going on? Interesting. The whole Brexit thing's probably been mentioned a few times during this preaching series already. Um, and a whole load of things going on around the world in terms of Nice and Turkey and the states and the political stuff there and um, news of Germany this week. And whether it's um, on a global scale or whether it's more locally, we need to be a hopeful people. We live in a city full of great things and I think that can sometimes kind of obscure the fact that hope is needed. I think I'm really looking forward to the festival and I, I actually I have a theory that the festival is in fact a kind of uh, project of hope. It's a kind of avoidance of the fact that for people who don't know Jesus that life is actually just really, really quite short. I'm 34 and I'm going to use my birth date and my predicted death date later and as I thought of that I thought that is terrifying. Actually, it's not, I'm going to be with Jesus. It's not terrifying, but it was a little more real as I worked out the maths and I like. Um, we've got, a, uh, we've got a, um, a city that is about to have this massive kind of celebration of what exactly? Of, of humanness, of some of it, of godliness, occasional bit. But I reckon even that is a project of hope. It's showing that hope is needed. People want to laugh at something. People want to enjoy life because they know there's something to it that... that, that could be and is good and we have a sure and certain hope in Jesus and even in a city as mostly affluent as Edinburgh people need that hope they need it and they know they need it more when life gets a bit tough or when their savings are threatened or when they're not quite sure how we're going to relate to the world around them but the verses we're about to look at from 1 Peter 2 tell you they need it for a different reason they need it because it's right because God is God and we need to share it, not because they just people need it, but because the Bible tells us to. We're going to see. I want you to look out for verse 12 as we read them together. where it, Basically, God is telling you in Scripture, live out your hope in public because it's the will of God. So let's read that together. Watch out for it. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles, non-Christians, honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. I think I said the wrong verse there. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. A friend of mine walked into a Romanian takeaway, as you do, right? Well, they were on mission in Romania, and having a, uh, they'd been on mission all day, and it got to 10 p.m., and they, they needed some food because they'd forgotten to eat. They're having a, a really great time, seeing God do some good things, 
and they needed some food. So they managed to find a Romanian takeaway that they thought they could probably order in because if you've been abroad this summer, it was like those ones with all the pictures of the different meals you can get. And it had, I suppose, burgers and chicken and chips and um, pizzas. So they walked in and they said, uh, they didn't speak any Romanian, hello. And uh, uh, we'd like to order a pizza, please. Yes, pizza, she said. I can't do a Romanian accent, so forgive me if you, <laughs> if you're, if, uh, I'm just not going to try. It might come out as Chinese or anything else, I don't know. So just, just ignore the accent a bit. But, but okay, okay. So she says, P pizza. Yes, pizza. She goes off out the back and she comes back and she says, one moment, please. One, one moment. And okay. We don't have pepperoni pizza, as they'd ordered, but we can do chicken. Okay, they're hungry. Yeah, chicken. Chicken pizza. Great. Chicken pizza. Great. So she goes out the back again and she, she then comes back and says, one moment, one moment. We have just battered chicken. Okay, we're really hungry. This is a little bit random, but battered chicken, okay? Fine, we'll have battered chicken pizza. Hmm, it's 10 o'clock, they're hungry. So uh, she, she goes out again, she comes back and says, one moment, one moment. Uh, we don't actually have tomato, we have mayonnaise. Like, <laughs> okay, we're having battered chicken on mayo pizza. This is sounding really interesting. They were really hungry. <laughs> So uh, they say, okay, we'll take what we can get, okay. So she goes out again and she comes back and says, one moment, dough. We don't, we don't really have a base. Okay. <laughs> we have bread. Okay, we'll take bread. They've managed to be sold a, basically a Romanian equivalent of a McChicken sandwich <laughs> rather than the pizza that they first ordered. As they were leaving with their chicken pizza thing sandwich, um, the door opens and someone else walks in and says, oh, yes, they sell pizza. <laughs> and they go, no, no. <laughs> um, it's a tenuous link, but it's there. I want to show you, and I think this has just come out in worship loud and clear, some of the things that God says about you before we get to these very earthy verses. Because in a few minutes, we're going to look through and see, um, or the whole of this preach, we're going to look through and see the very earthy way in which Jesus wants us to be a part of the world around us. But he hops, like Peter here, hops from some amazing heavenly truths about you first. Now, this is not because God is saying, you're one thing, now let me sell you another thing because I want to sneak it in there. This is actually because he's painting a picture for us of what all of the different facets of the Christian life look like. So, almost of different ways light reflects in a diamond. So, very different from my pizza story, but, but you are, I want you to see the contrast between the verses that come just before these ones and, and the ones we're, we're majoring on. So if you've got your Bibles open and you want to look at um, 1 Peter 2, as I said, we were just reading from verses 11 to 17. We'll just take a moment. Before then, he says this, and you can just listen if you want. In 1, P, uh, 1 Peter 2, 9, you are, church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. If you then glance through the verses we're majoring on, verse 11 verse, and onwards, the first thing he says about you is this. You are, beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles. Sojourners is a bit of a kind of quaint word, but when I first read this, I thought, sojourner, like, 
sojourn and exile, that's like alien. Actually, that's, that's, I like the idea of being a royal priesthood set apart for God. That, that I like. My wife will tell you, I enjoy being treated like a king at times. It doesn't happen that often because she sees when it's happening and says, oh, you, what are you doing? <laughs> Much more politely than that. But I like the idea of a royal priesthood set apart for God's own possession. That feels to me, that's important. That's, yeah, and we need to get that. And I, I, I see that we do. We've had just a great time realizing all that, that God has done for us in Jesus. It's amazing. He then says, you're aliens. Aliens? He's like, alien as in don't belong. But, right, alien as in, as in or exile, as in homeless, as in between homes, as in coming from somewhere, going to... All right, okay. You can have a look next. You'll see up there. This is verse 13. He also refers to as this. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Hold on a second. Royal people have subjects. Verse 13 tells you, the royal people of God, be subject. And then, that isn't earthy enough for you, uh, verse 16, living as servants. I want us to look at these. You are sojourners, aliens, people wandering. I know Matt's done a whole load on that, so we'll do it briefly. Um, be subject to human institutions. That should be a little bit like, what? And live as servants of God. You probably spotted... And it's probably that actually uh, what Peter's doing here is painting not just a picture of you as God's chosen people. He's painting a picture of his son. He's saying, do you know what? The high, the king, his son, his beloved, came to earth, traveling homelessly to some degree, wandering in a place that he didn't fit and didn't belong, being subject to human institutions, and living as a servant. Actually, what he's done here is really quite humbling. He's saying, you, God's people, those of you who love Jesus, to this you're called, to, to, to live out your faith in an earth that you don't belong in as subjects to those around you. Jesus, the Bible tells us, was subject to his parents. It's the same word. You could be subject to a, a, a kind of... Um, leader of an army if you're in the army. That's a really strong word for scripture to use about the way we relate to the world around us, which is why you need both of those, because actually if you get those out of sync or you don't do both of those, it, the Christian life just isn't right and isn't, isn't a godly one if you're just passing through or you're so subject you forget where you've come from. The Bible says in Philippians that Jesus, being the form of God, didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped took on human form and humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The picture is this. The vision of living your hope out in public is this. How do you live a life of hope? Well, you find your hope in Jesus. You live out your hope like Jesus so that through the mysteries of God, people around you can put their trust in Jesus. Let me say that again. You find your hope in Jesus you live out your hope like Jesus as sojourner, subject, servant, and even suffering, which I know Matt's speaking on in a few weeks. And people around you, through the goodness and the mysteries of God, will put their trust in Jesus. I'm not sure it'll be dramatic. I'm not sure it'll be glorious in human terms. In fact, it'll look pretty low. But you, the royal the people chosen by God, set apart so that you might proclaim his excellencies. 
are to keep your conduct honorable, as it says in verse 12, so that when people speak against you, they will see your good deeds, and on the day of visitation, that means the day when God draws near to them, whether now or when Jesus returns, they might give glory to God. Sojourners are people who know they're on a journey, and we see that in Jesus in John 13.3. One of my, a verse I just think is great in Scripture is John 13.3, where he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, that he'd come from God and was going back to God, what did he do? He rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus knew where he'd come from, he knew where he was going, he got down on his knees and he served. Louis Diglio describes this as the writing on your tombstone, which was my reference to birthday earlier. He says that, you know, my tombstone, if I have one, which I probably will, will say Gordon Rouse, 1981 to dash, I don't know, 2060 something, hopefully, by the will of God. <laughs> um, these two dates, there's a start date, I've come from somewhere, there is an end date, I'm going somewhere, and there's this little dash in between. What we see in this dash in the life of Jesus is what, actually it's, it's a rubbish symbol, it needs to be something else almost. It needs to be two things, it needs to show you, yes, you're on a journey, like Jesus, you've been rescued from sin and slavery to sin, and you are going into eternity with him and living under him, but also we need to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's two different things going on at once. So that they might see your deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation when God draws near to the non-Christian. Your willingness to live here now in Edinburgh under God's rule and increasingly applying his kingdom rule is designed by God to point people to him and for him to use it in a very real way. I just want to point out, um, before I move on, there's, a, there's a, a little line there that I think is quite challenging, which says, um, put to silence. This is the um, will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Actually, you see earlier in 1, I think it's 13, 14, 15, somewhere around that, chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Actually, that's how he refers to you too. So this isn't, this isn't um, quite as, as out there as it sounds. The Bible is saying, you'll put to silence like God did you, people who are looking for hope in other things. So the point there is, we were all those ignorant and foolish people if, when we didn't know Jesus. And he wants to do it again, as he did with you, with someone else, as they see you serving and as they see you living for him. I've been thinking about this. Jesus, I said earlier, was subject to his, his um, parents. And the, the Bible uses that, that word just after the, uh, the kind of thing where he ends up in his father's house, he says, you know, and they look for him and they can't find him, and they do, and I imagine there's a bit of a, what are you doing? And um, it, it describes then his life of being subject to his parents. How do you feel about being subject, as verse um, 13 says, to human institutions? Like, I feel like I've spent my life trying not to buy in too much to humanness around me. And then we're reading in scripture, be subject to them. It isn't suddenly agreeing with everything that's going on around you. In fact, it really isn't. It's about 
the call of God for us to be normal enough in the places he's put you. I wonder how many professions we've got across our church or how many different communities we've got across our church or how many, I mean, if you try to map the sheer number of friendships, I can't remember the stats, but there's an average number of uh, friendships that we probably have amongst us, which means that we are positioned to be a massive, massive beacon of hope in communities across this city and if you're visiting across this country or the United Kingdom or even world. Be subject to human institutions. It isn't talking kind of institutions, capital I, like the Institute for Fiscal Studies. It's, it's not, not saying that either, but what it's actually saying is, is be subject to the way humans work. An institution wasn't really a, a thing as it is now um, in Bible times, but you'll find what he's saying is this is the way things work. Some of you might say, my granny's cooking, it's an institution. Like it's, it's just the way things should be done. And the Bible is telling you, be subject to the, the way that things are settled in life, the ways of doing things, the way the world understands. Be people who are normal enough that, that you can relate to people. That is a challenge for Jill and I, because I, I don't know if you've heard, it's pretty, pretty old, but this phrase, dinkies, up until now we have been dual income, oh, what is it, no kids yet. I'm pleased to say, as you've probably heard me say many times, that we have a wee boy on the way, which is very exciting for us, but it does change the acronym somewhat. Um, and, but we, we've got used to some things in life just not being subject to. I, I'm not sub, we're not subject as a couple to the bus system, particularly anymore, as we can both drive now. And it, we're not subject to that. We're increasingly in the middle class life, you get to the point of being less subject to others and less subject to institutions and less subject to a lot of things you see as childish limitations. And yet, and yet we're being told, be subject. Why? For the Lord's sake. It's a really good sign that God has called you to a group of people if you find yourself going there tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Like, be subject, serve them, serve them really well. Serve them as someone whose citizenship is in heaven, but for the Lord's sake is being subject. Sometimes you're asked to sin when you're being subject to others and the way the world works, whether that's institution little i or capital I of big organizations. And you see stories in that in scripture all the time. Daniel 3 holds one of them where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are appointed at the request of Daniel to a, an ungodly king who, um, who they find favor and compassion in the sight of. And they serve really diligently. They, they don't eat particular foods as a way of standing out, but they, other than that, they just serve, serve, serve. They are, they are loyal subjects. And then they're asked to worship another god. And the sojourner passing through alien thing comes in in contrast to the to the, actually, I belong to God, comes in contrast to he's called me to be subject to the world around me. And they have to solve, as all of us do regularly, this really complicated kind of thing of how do I do those both? But that's what we see here. We see it in Jesus. A servant, but someone who knows where he's come from and knows where he's going. Little do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think in the early early stages realize that actually that where you're coming from and when you're going is going to include a brief time in a furnace. Wow. It's okay to engage with earthly leaders who are 
who we don't think are okay and who don't love God. I want to challenge us to, to not go do either one of those and be totally, try and totally remove ourselves and be completely independent. And, but also, I don't know, like me, it's just too easy to, to get at home in places, to think, oh, that's, that's just how they do things and I'm okay there and sort of separate out from the rest of my Christian walk. Well, discipleship, I think, is a, a long journey of learning, no, God is, wants every bit of your life to be subject to him but that includes being subject to the people he's placed you with. You also see that with the midwives in Exodus 1 who are told to kill off every firstborn um, of God's people. Professions are human institutions, ways of doing that get drilled into you for years and years at university until they're not really in your conscious mind so much as that's just how we work. Well, to be a sojourner and to be a subject, sometimes, as I've already said, means we really need the wisdom of God and we need his spirit to be guiding us through some really difficult stuff. The danger in the professional realm is we become more, sub, more subject than sojourners. Both. I loved our songs there. That, that um, I can't remember which one it was, but there's this real sense of this Jesus' victory over the grave. And here's the reality for us, is that Jesus was subject to the electric chair of his time, the cross, so that he might die and defeat death and transform it. Death is not the end. Where's your sting, O oh death? Jesus was subject and brought transformation. We went to see the BFG uh, the night before last. We really enjoyed it, in fact. Uh, saw a few of you there. Um, I'm glad because I felt slightly, uh, slightly childish going along to this. But I think this is a great film. We've really, we really, really enjoyed it. Um, I, we saw a few kids who didn't enjoy it because it's actually darker than you would expect for a PG. And there are a few very little kids that walked out in tears. And uh, there was a, probably a moment in the film that brought a tear to my eye for a different reason. It's got some really great scenes in it. Um, please don't go on the basis that it's a super, super deep film. But it is just really, really enjoyable. There is this scene that hopefully won't spoil it for you too much, where you find there's an orphan girl who's come from an orphanage who is sitting in Buckingham Palace with a giant. <laughs> now, these guys have come from their different places. The giant has come from giant country to, um, to come. And at night, actually, he's been really useful. He's been serving the city of London without anyone noticing. And uh, he's perfected a way of hiding a giant in London. It's bonkers, but it's great. Um, he's, he's worked out how to hide in London and do good deeds without anyone noticing. And eventually, he works with the queen and an orphan to, uh, to try and defeat the other giants. Now, the reason these kids were crying is because these other giants basically eat children. And that becomes really, really clear in the film. I'm like, OK, in the book, it's kind of limited by your imagination. In the film, it's actually like. Man, you don't see it, but it's pretty like, oh my goodness, they eat children. Um, and so these guys are teaming up with the queen um, to fight this evil. And there's, it's hilarious because this BFG tries to get into Buckingham Palace. He's like three times the height of Buckingham Palace. He's bent over double, knocking over chandeliers, priceless vases, like just complete chaos as the, B, the big friendly giant tries to fit in into this world because he wants to serve it. He's there saying, oh, I, I, I'm here, we've got to, we've got to do this. Like, um, the little orphan girl is like, 
I'm here and there's fresh fruit. She looks like she hasn't seen fresh fruit in all 11 years of her life. On the other hand, she fits in really easily. She, they posh her up with a new dress. She sits down and just stuffs her face with all these strawberries and stuff. And it's a, it's a really beautiful scene. I, I think this is a good example of the sojourner. Be sojourners. It's what God is saying to you. Living out your faith as people who don't fit here, but also as subjects who come, who come under others and serve and are humble and are willing to kind of squish themselves in to some degree. And you're actually, funnily enough, in the story, you're closer to the BFG than you are to the little girl. He's not human, but actually in spiritual terms, you are more like him. It should be a squish to fit in, but you should be choosing to do it. Jesus, I've said already, for whom the whole world existed, subjected himself to birth, life, and death, so that we might live a life which verse 9, 12, and 15 tell us um, will point to God and that others might see God. A few ways you can do this. One is, and it's, it's a pretty obvious one, you can proactively do attractive things that demonstrate your sojourner subject status. A few weeks ago, I, actually a couple of months ago now, I, I worked with uh, some of you as we went up to uh, the links and we pitched a tent in the middle of basically a field in the centre of Edinburgh. Now, I have to tell you, this is not normal behaviour. As most people noticed, as we started getting this all up, people were kind of looking pretty shiftily at us. <laughs> like, what are these guys trying to sell? What's going on here? What's this all about? We put our big banners up that said Hub 104, trying to link local teenagers in with Christians who will serve them and care for them. And we, we got a few funny looks. And we stood there and we prayed and said, Lord, without you, or certainly I was praying, Lord, without you, I'm just a man in a field looking a bit odd. Actually, what we were doing there was saying, but with you, we are people holding out hope to a world that doesn't have it. And God wants you to... We were subject to all kinds of things there. We were subject to the wind as we had to weigh the tent down. We were subject to the weather. As The most effective day was the day that we chose to stay there, even though it was raining. And we pitched our tent under a tree. And on that day, another, I don't know, 30, 40 teenagers came along and just looked really confused and asked time and time again. I heard it so many times but why are you doing this? Like, what, what? And we don't always hear it, but that's going on in people's brain. It's what, it must be. If people are seeing your good deeds and might one day, then know God. They're processing that. And for us, they process it verbally, which is a joy to hear, as some of the team said, well, we love Jesus and he loves you, or we're the local church and we want to serve you. We want to be subject to you. Another thing you notice from this text is verse 11 is that we should expect battles. In fact, three different verses say we should expect battles. Um, The one that's unexpected, I think, as we try to serve others is maybe the internal one. I sort of get ready when I face the world. I get ready for a bit of a, like, needing to persevere or needing to keep going or, you know, this is, we need to get into this for the long haul because it'll take, it takes a while to convince people that, Actually, just because you love Jesus like, doesn't mean you're really strange. It does mean you're strange. It just doesn't mean you can't relate to them. But the internal battle that you see in verse 11 is one that I think we need to be aware of. First line, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Jill and I, we, um, as we've spoken up up front before, we're part of the Safe Families for Children kind of thing in Edinburgh as our church is a, a partner in. And we have a couple of kids that we work with that are aged 
uh, I think, ten, uh, 9 and 11. And we were working out which sun Saturdays and Sundays we could give away to, to these guys. And I found myself looking at my diary thinking, I want some, I want, I want some time. Uh, like we're giving away a lot of time to these kids here, and do you know there is a godly, there's a godly thing of setting aside time and being rested and and actually having time for one another for us and and even and just time for God and time to just rest and do recreational stuff. This wasn't that. This was verse eleven. This was a bit of me going, but it's all about me. Service actually, uh, being subject to other people and serving them, tells you. No, no flesh, it's not just all about you. Actually, it's about Jesus, who being in the very, very nature God, humbled himself, served on this earth, even to death on a cross. So expect battles, church, as you choose to be subject to the world around you, as you do it for the glory of God, a bit of you will say, but what about me? And you need to ask yourself, is that a godly thing? Or is that a, well, for me, it's godly or Gordon. You can't really use that as a kind of, as a way of thinking about that. But, you know, is it a godly thing or is it a fleshly thing? You also should expect battles from outside. Verse 12 says, when people speak against you. Okay, like let's, sometimes we serve and we get out there and we put ourselves in vulnerable positions or we, we kind of go, I'm going to be like Jesus in this situation. And then when we get there, someone says, ooh, he believes this or she believes that. And my temptation would be to go, oh, what? Like, the Bible tells you it's going to happen. Like, actually, it's a sign that the process is happening. Like, it's a sign that you have, you're serving the world around you. People speak against you. When, when people speak against you is what the scriptures say. Please don't be surprised. So proactively do attractive things that demonstrate, uh, demonstrate your sojourner status with faith and expect these battles inside and out. Question for you. I'm not going to do hands up, but have you, I wonder, have you prayed for Nicola Sturgeon or Theresa May recently? It's quite a jump, isn't it? I felt God really challenged me on that as I was looking at our kind of political climate going, oh, what's this going to be like? Oh, man, okay. And I sense God was saying, pray for them. Not in a kind of, because I want to somehow in prayer, in a very human way, control world events so that they help me to the best, best way possible. Because prayer can be like that, right? But, but actually, in a way that is humbling myself and saying, actually, do you know what? I'm not having to run the, the Scottish government and I'm not having to lead in this world political stage. I am before God, his child, set apart for him and told to serve the world. So I got on my knees and prayed for them. Pray for those in leadership. Actually, it also proves that you're a person under authority, the authority of God, because Romans 13, 1 tells us that all authority comes from God. There isn't anyone with, there isn't authority without God. And somehow putting ourselves beneath others, it says, actually, it echoes that truth that we are subject to God, that he is our all in all. As I said earlier, you're all a part of universities, workplaces. You physically live in different parts of the city. Um, if you've got kids, you have schools that God has put you as a part of. And another thing you can do in living a life of hope, it's a really, really obvious one, is just participate in normal, everyday things of life. 
In fact, participation is really big at the moment. In every school, it is the policy of your local school that they would have parents who are a part of it and who participate in decision-making or interviews of staff members or policies that they develop in the school. It's not glorious, but it's a, a point in which, it's a context for which you can be a shining light for Jesus so that people might see your good deeds. Not in a pious way, in a humble way, subject yourself to that, because I don't know if you've ever sat in any kind of council meeting, but they are really boring. <laughs> like, you have to subject yourself to that proactively. But we see it here. And get involved in the everyday stuff of life. I've been reading, I've left the books, but I've been reading um, Jeff van der Stelt, um, who is uh, just a godly guy who um, talks about asking God to use kind of everyday rhythms of life, whether that is... Um, eating together, whether that's celebrating together, doing recreational stuff with people around, people around you, whether that's blessing other people and being generous or telling stories, all of these very normal things that all of you will do um, in, in this week, hopefully, are, are everyday institutions that God wants to use to glorify himself in your life. There's a good blog you can read on that called Saturate the World. Um, it's, it's worth having a look at. Uh, it's, it's really very kind of everyday stuff, which is really enjoyable. There's a final point here that I want you to see in verse 16. It says this. How do we live a hope in public? I think verse 16 has got something for us there. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I've got this graphic up on the screen for you. Um, so it says, honour everyone. Honour is like attributing rightful worth to someone. Everyone you meet has been knitted together in their mother's womb by God. Honour all people. It then says, love the brotherhood. These are other Christians around you. We're church family together. We're to love the brotherhood. Okay, yeah, yeah. And number one, top one there, is fear God. Now, fear doesn't fit any of the other ones. Fear the brotherhood, that would be a very sad thing. Fear all people. There are days where we can be like that. There's the fourth one, which says this. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. I feel like he's playing a bit of a game with us in the way he's written this, which is to say, where does the emperor fit in? Where do earthly, worldly authorities fit in this? Well, do they fit a fear? Sometimes they do. I saw some like, Facebook posts after Brexit going, ah, what's going to happen in the whole world? Fear the... Where does it fit? Love? Well, you could. Kind of difficult from a distance. Honour. The Bible says that. It comes there at the bottom along with all other people, all earthly authorities, and the emperor included, who's probably pretty terrifying at the time, belongs here at the bottom. Honour all people. If you find yourself going to step out, going to either stand out in your workplace or serve, and you find yourself afraid, that's probably a very natural human thing. Do you know what? Who does fear belong to? Fear belongs to God. And when I find myself being fearful, and it's more regular than I would like, I've learned that when I am afraid, as the psalmist says, I put my trust in God. So as you engage with the world around you, as you put your hope, live out your life of hope in public, if you find yourself um, fearful, I want to ask you to, to remember this. Fear goes up there. It's God who gets fear. It's God who holds all the cards. It's God who is in, in charge of absolutely everything in our world. Um, it's, it's not anyone else.
fear belongs to him, and when I'm afraid, I put my trust in God. I want to tell you a quick story to finish on, which is um, some really good news that we had in the last, uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, so I've been, uh, I've been a, a Christian for quite some years, and when I first became a Christian, I sensed that God was calling me to come to Scotland to study youth work and theology. So I did that. And when I left my family, it was such a contrast to them that I was going to that I was on this parallel journey almost. They were like, wow, what, who is this child we've raised? He is going to study God's stuff. So they bought me, my granddad bought me a massive gold cross because he thought I'd like join some kind of monk, would become a monk or something. <laughs> like he was like, what, 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 what's happened to my grandson? I was living there as someone who knew that actually God had rescued me from sin and hell and death and I was going with him into eternity. And I was like, actually, I'm on a, I'm on a different track now. And that track looked like very quickly me moving to Scotland and, and you know, learning all about youth work and theology um, and Christian youth work. And my family were like, what, what is going on here? And from that point on, every time I went back, I tried to be, serve really hard within my family home. I tr- and my family's pretty messy. Like, there were lots of challenges there and lots of opportunities to serve. And I tried really hard, years and years, of serving, 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 and when I could, speaking about Jesus to the rest of my family. And I have to tell you, it's been pretty fruitless. Like, actually, in human terms, pretty fruitless. Because I've served away, served away, served away, served away, and prayed and asked God, please, Lord, you, like, would you just let me be a shining light in this? And I've lived life differently. I mean, um, the conscience, like a bef- some of our family lives are like before and after pictures. If, I, I won't go into all the details, but you, there are real differences in our lives to my family's life. And not in a pious way, but in a we're following God, we love God, we want to live after him kind of way. And um, I thought, well, Lord, I've done this. I've, I've tried. I've gone back to my family home year after year. I've tried to live as a servant. I've tried to be someone who honors you. It's been really tough at times, and I have failed massively at times in that. But God, please do something with this. And to be honest, I kind of hadn't noticed, but I'd given up thinking about it. I just thought, well, my family, well, let's see what happens with them. This week, my mom arrived, and she said, told me about her journey, and she said, it's been, it's, been, it's been fine. She always tells me how the train's been, whether there was food and drink, what her person sitting next to her life story was, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and she then said, but Gordon, I've got some really, really, really good news. And I was like, okay, I wonder what it is. You know? And she said... I found Jesus. <laughs> and I could not. Guys, I want to cry. <laughs> I'm so grateful to God that he, when he has drawn near to her, and it was in the most, the most um, kind of bizarre way to be honest. She was on a cathedral tour uh, or, or a kind of church tour of some kind where some heathen tour guide was saying to her, people sometimes connect with the dead people of the past in our church. My mum quite likes spooky stuff, but I'm going to delete this from, uh, from the recording because she doesn't like me telling you that she likes spooky stuff. But she quite likes spooky stuff. And I was like, oh, no, where's this story going? And she said, Gordon, I knew it wasn't, it wasn't my, your, my dead daughter. It wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. It was Jesus. I knew he was there with me. And I knew all this stuff I'd heard for years and seen people live out. I just knew it was true. And I knew that he'd, he'd, I've got a fresh start with him and that he loves me. And she said, that, she said this looking radiant. When she prays, he hears her. When she sings, he delights in her. And I was just unbelievably moved by this. 
because for years there'd been no fruit of, of any human effort around her. But when God drew, drew near, and it's only God that saves, but when God drew near, he drew near and she went, yes, it's you. I want, I, I want you. I cannot believe the goodness of God in that. It is, it is yeah, fantastic. So, Living a, um, living a life for God, living our hope out in public can be hard sometimes. Living our hope out in public is something that God wants for us and he gives us what we need in that and he calls you to it. He calls you to be a person who just is consistently living for him as a sojourner and subject to the world around you. How can we respond to that? Why don't you stand for me and we'll, we'll respond. If the band would like to come up, that would be great. For some of us, I think you know that God's got more for you and he's able. Like, he has placed you where he's placed you and he is able to use you. And for some of us, it's a response of putting your hands out and saying, Lord, use me. Lord, I want to live a God-good life, not just a, a, good, a, a life that looks good, but one that is, has faith for you, using me and changing the world around me. And for some of us, we can be in a place of fear of standing out, or, or even fear of standing out as a sojourner, or even fear of being stuck as someone who's subject to the world around us. For lots of, it's possible for years to fight this thing of, does God really want to put me anywhere in particular? Can I not just wander in earthly terms and move on all the time? Some of you need to respond, say, Lord, I want to fear you over everything else, over every earthly authority, over every fleshly desire. And that can be in complex work situations where you will need the wisdom of God and the spirit of God provides that. And for some, you've been serving for a long time and you know what? You haven't seen God draw people to him yet, but he wants to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Whether you want to be used more, whether you're afraid, or whether you're just keeping on, keeping on, we all need more of his spirit, and that's what I'd like to pray for us. Lord God, it is you that we need. We, we love you, Lord, and we want more of you. Lord, would you use us as your people placed here for you? Give us more of your spirit. Help us keep our eyes fixed on you. And Lord, we, we can't do it without you. We just can't, Lord. It's only you who's capable of changing this world around us and drawing people to you and saving people. But Lord, we're here for you and we, we, we want more of you. Our hope is in you, Lord. Give us more of your spirit. And Lord, I pray, would you open doors for us? And I pray for those who are afraid, God, more of your spirit, they put their trust in you and you alone, that everything else would just seem small in comparison, small and where you want them to serve, but small. And Father, thank you for those who've been uh, serving diligently. Well done, good and faithful servant. The Lord's got even more for you. Amen.